Um, you've heard the text uh, read to us by the in the Lumo video, and that's and that is just a a, a wonderful way to to see it. I hope that you um, have the notes for the, the the sermon, and it has my own translation. If you don't have the notes, uh, if you raise your hand, someone from the back will will uh, bring you a copy, I believe, and so you so that you can have have that as we as we go into it into this, this study. This is about a time of healing, and I think, uh, and I think that's appropriate for this day, uh, whether it's healing at the end of, uh, of, sort of the end of Afghanistan and all of our involvement there, or the remembrance of 9-11, or the midst of this pandemic ever-shifting and so forth. Healing is especially important, but also all of us know that there's so much more in ourselves that's, that's going on. And as we come to the passage that we have before us today, Luke is leading us into the heart of Jesus' ministry. And as Luke does, as he's telling the story, there's so many things that, that one could tell, and you see that as you read the different Gospels, that there are different ways that one could, uh, could cast the story. He's pointing out to us distinct scenes that give us images, give us tools, give us, give us words, give us metaphors for understanding what, both what's happening and what's to come as the ministry of, of Jesus unfolds. Luke's narrative is not any sort of ordinary biography because Luke knows Jesus as a living a living person in his own life. Jesus' living identity in his own life. Jesus is not dead and past so that a biography might be written about him in the ordinary sense. He is very alive, both in an individual like Luke, like so many others, like Paul, but also in the communities of believers and in the whole and in the whole world, absolutely, as, as Luke uh, understands it and knows it. We've already watched as we've gone through the parts of, of Luke that we've looked at. We've been on this journey with him and we've heard these words over and over again that, that give us that, that language. We've heard, going right back to the beginning and Gabriel coming to Mary, we've heard the name, the significance of the name Jesus. We've heard that he's holy. We've heard that spirits involved in him. We've heard that he was son of God already there. And we listen as the story unfolds. We listen as Mary learns of, of, her, um, of her pregnancy and, and speaks the words of that Magnificat that we sing uh, together often and talks about the bringing down of the high and mighty and the lifting up of the lowly. We've heard Elizabeth looking at Mary and calling her the mother of my Lord, when she has not yet even had the, the child. We have heard Simeon in the temple. Simeon who talks about Jesus as the anointed king, as the Messiah. God had promised him that he would not taste death until he had seen the Lord's anointed king, his Messiah. But he also talks about that sword piercing through the heart of Mary. And so there is this two sides, these, this complexity to what's going on with, uh, with, uh, in this, this 
narrative. And kind of it, the ultimate in that series is, uh, is Jesus' baptism. When God himself, the heavens open, and God's voice comes, my son, my beloved one, in whom I delight. It's kind of the climax of, of all of that. But with that affirmation at Jesus' baptism, one might think everything's settled, but it's immediately then when the challenges, especially the challenges, start. And Jesus is led into the wilderness, and we've had to have the, the narrative of the testing by the accuser, by the diabolos, the devil, in the wilderness. If you are a son of God, da -da 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 -da, turn this stone into bread, and so forth. I look at all these kingdoms of the world, all their glory. They've all been handed over to me. I give them to whoever I want. All you have to do is worship me. Make God prove himself. Jump off the pinnacle of the temple and he'll catch you. If you're the son of God. Oh. But at the end of it, what might have been a great battle, we might have thought, well, Jesus versus the devil, <clears throat> that should be a great battle, turns into just simply a rout, and Jesus is t uh, totally untouched, and the accuser departs until a more convenient time, he says. Jesus then goes home, continues his travels as he had left home, evidently, gone down to to, um, to where John the Baptist was baptizing, gone into the wilderness. Now he returns back home to, the, to Nazareth. But now in the power of the Spirit, as, as Luke tells us. And there in the synagogue, as you remember, the passage that we used right at the very beginning of this series, and that comes immediately before our text today, Jesus comes into the synagogue and is given the, the scroll to read. And he chooses the passage from, a passage from Isaiah, the Isaiah scroll. And he unrolls it there and finds the passage in Isaiah 61 and some related verses that he joins in together with it. And uh, the, as it says in Luke chapter 4, verses 17 through 19, And a scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And when he had unrolled the scroll, he found the, pl the place where it, stand, where it was written, The Lord's Spirit is on me, because he anointed me to, to announce good news to any who are poor. He sent me to proclaim release to captives and recovery of sight to blind to send out release any who are oppressed, to proclaim a welcome year of the Lord, Isaiah 61, 58, and so on. And so Jesus reads the words. They're well-known words. They're words from one of the, the favorite prophets, the great prophet, prophet Isaiah, and um, sits down, and everybody's looking at it. Staring at him. Their eyes are fixed on him. And they start telling things that they remember about him. How is it that he has these words of grace coming out of his mouth? And Jesus says to them those words, Today, this 
passage of Scripture is filled to the full as you are listening to it. But notice the words in the passage. The Lord's Spirit is on me. We've thought about that in relationship to the baptism. The Lord's Spirit, he's anointed me. It's an anointing in a sense of the Spirit. And he's anointed me for a purpose, to announce good news to any who are poor. He has sent me. Remember these words because they come up again in our text. He has sent me to proclaim release to captives and recovering of sight to blind. He, so the, the release of captives, the recovery of sight to blind. He is to send out released any who are oppressed and to proclaim a welcome year of the Lord. These, this is what's being fulfilled right here, right now. What is going to be fulfilled as we go, go forward. Each word of those, especially those significant words in the text, has multiple facets in the, in the, um, in the, of meaning as they unfold in the gospel. And also they are going to be illuminated and developed in the narrative of the gospel. But also each facet is going to be challenged as we, as we go along. Jesus will heal blind people, recovery of sight to the blind. But <clears throat> already, right there in Nazareth, we see people who cannot see what's right in front of them. They can't see Jesus because basically of their familiarity with him. Because they already know him. They know what they want to expect, what they can expect, what's within their, their framework of, of understanding. And they certainly can't, can't welcome, they can't see the things that Jesus goes on to talk about, about, about uh, Naaman being healed and this widow up there in Sidon being healed, these Gentiles. That's not within their, their understanding. Who's the scripture talking about? Who is Jesus talking about as he reads it? Who are the captives? Who are the oppressed? We're all oppressed by Rome, they might say in the synagogue. Yes, they are. They're all oppressed. And people were being enslaved, captured all the time. They were captured in war all the time because there were battles always going on. There was piracy on the high seas. There were people like the... <laughs> Like the man who was attacked in the story of the Good Samaritan just traveling down the road. Yes, there were all kinds of ways of being oppressed and captured. Hmm. Who does Jesus include in this filling full of the scripture? So Luke doesn't explain it to us as usual. But he just takes us to the next step in the journey. And Luke shows us Jesus as he goes down to Capernaum. So let me read again from Luke chapter 4, verses 31 to 35. Then Jesus traveled down from the hills of Nazareth. Nazareth is on a, a big ridge that's, uh, you know, about, not so high, but it's, you know, maybe 1,300, 400 feet above sea level. But he, you go down to the bottom of that, to the sea level, 
And then you keep on going down another 700 feet below sea level before you get to the Sea of Galilee because it's down below sea level there in the Rift Valley as it goes through that area. So it's a considerable path down the hill from Nazareth down to, to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. City, not in any sense that we would recognize, but city in terms of its importance in Galilee. It used to be the major city, but now it's lesser because Herod Antipas has made Tiberias a new city that he's just constructed his, his capital. And he continued teaching people on each Sabbath day. And they were astonished at his teaching because his message carried authority. Once in the synagogue, there was a person who had a spirit of a corrupting, <laughs> bear with me on this translation, a corrupting being of power. Oh, you see how I hyphenated that. A daimonion. And he cried out with a loud voice, Aha! What's your concern with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know you, who you are. The Holy One of God. Then Jesus rebuked it, saying, Be silent and go out of him. And after the being of power threw him down right in among them, it went out of him without injuring him. So down the hill Jesus comes through the towns in between. The towns in between, by the way, include Cana. I, I wonder whether maybe he had an appointment there with, for a wedding on his way by. Who, who could tell? That's the story that's told in the Gospel of John. He would likely go through the town of Magdala there on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Later, just in the 8th chapter, a woman named Mary of Magdala, Mary Magdalene, is... Um, recorded that she had encountered Jesus at some point and he had cast demons out of her and she had become his disciple and uh, became a leader of the women who surrounded uh, Jesus. We do not know. That's just speculation. They just happened to be on the way. He comes to the synagogue in Capernaum. To go to Capernaum today, you can stand on the spot because the ruins of the synagogue, and one that was built on top of it after that original one was destroyed, uh, are right there. And you can see it, people everywhere, all over the ruins, uh, sharing in the experience of trying to do that. Um, and so we can imagine Jesus going into the synagogue there and teaching. Luke doesn't say a word about his the content of his teaching. He just lets it stand on analogy with what he had said in Nazareth. But he emphasizes the fact that people experienced its authority. And they were astonished. Astonishment came over them. And so he, he wants us to realize that this kind of interaction of teaching, of proclamation is going on. But he then points to an event, one Sabbath, and this is where he picks up the narrative as it is in the Gospel of Mark especially. Because uh, as we've talked about, he, he has the, the Gospel of Mark. He's, so, so much of what's come up to this point, there's been 
independent narratives from uh, not not in the Gospel of Mark. But here he starts to follow Mark closely, but with his own emphasis. And as I mentioned, as I in the the translation that I gave you, I use a rather cumbersome translation of the Greek word daimonion. I translated it as being of power just in order to avoid the word demon. I don't like transliterations for these kinds of words. But um, I readily grant you that being of power is not a very felicitous translation. But uh, it captures something of what this would mean for an ordinary person reading Greek. Because for in, in the Greek language, a daimon was a divinity. And a daimonion was the diminutive of that, a little divinity. Greeks, the Jews often used it as a term for the, the little throwaway gods that the pagans worshipped that were not really gods. But the Greeks themselves often would speak of divinities using this term. In fact, in, in the book of Acts, when we get to Acts the 17th chapter and the 18th verse as, Peter, as Paul is preaching in, in Athens, the people there say he, he seems to be speaking about some, some different divinities. And they use the word daimonia, that, this word here. And so Luke, in his narrative writing as he does, has to specify that this is a bad daimonion. It's unclean. It's corrupting. It's something that defiles and corrupts the life of the person that it is affecting. And so, as Luke takes us there, we realize that maybe what we had expected at the end of Jesus' testing by the, by the diabolos, the accuser, uh, is not perhaps what we expected. The, um, the, uh, we're told, Luke says, that the, the diabolos left him, for a, for a, left him until a convenient season. But his departure, mentioned in chapter 4, verse 13, did not mean that the beings and structures of power that seize human life are gone. We've already seen it in a more abstract way with the people in Nazareth who cannot see Jesus and cannot understand him. And now we see it in this concrete way in the synagogue in Nazareth. Now, here probably this is a narrative that's told by people that were there in Capernaum. And this is the way they saw what was going on. They saw that there was something that had hold of this person, maybe a person that they knew well, and that controlled and enslaved his life. And it was a direct manifestation of this corrupting being of power in this person's life. One who was sitting right there among them. But that being, Luke tells us, says things that we recognize. Jesus is the Holy One of God. In fact, Luke wants us to hear the things that that daimonion says that Jesus tells him not to say. Because maybe we have more tools for understanding what that could be, what it could mean. But Jesus, in that situation, silences him. He knows that, I mean, this, this daimonion, this being of power, knows things, but it's without, hmm, I don't know what one would say, without 
trust without real knowledge. He, it's not simply facts that matter, but it's what those facts mean and the impact they have. What you can trust and what you do trust. To call Jesus the Holy One of God while fighting him is blindness that creates more blindness. The, the being of power says, will you destroy us? And the answer is yes. But not us. Not the man that's held captive by the power. Jesus gives release, gives it's the very same word as is usually translated forgiveness to the man. He gives release to him. He gives aphesis. He, it, he, they use the verb to send away as, that, as the word to forgive is there. He is released from this enslavement. This is a fundamental idea, a fundamental hope of Israel. This is what the hope of renewal for all God's people was about. Oppression, exile that had been so much a part of the story of Israel resulted from human wrongs that we perpetrate. That's speaking we as human beings perpetrate. And thus we are responsible for. But as the scriptures show again and again, certainly as Paul goes into it in detail, shows they are also things that enslave us. And oppress us. So that we can't free ourselves from them. We often can't even recognize our own enslavement. But Jesus says God is proclaiming a new release. And the man is released. People look on with astonishment. They talk. Chapter 4 verses 36 and 37. And astonishment came over everyone. And they all started talking to each other, saying, What is this message? This is the Greek word logos. The same word as in the beginning was the word. What is this message? Because with authority and power, he's commanding the corrupting spirits, and they're leaving. And brouhaha about Jesus began to spread into every spot in the region all around. The word brouhaha here is translation of the Greek word that simply means noise. Noise spread about Jesus. The message. The logos. The word. But the authority and the Power, Jesus' word, Jesus' message is as much an action as it is a statement, as it is a teaching, as it is a word. He, he actually reveals and, and removes these corrupting spirits, these corrupting beings of power. These things that enslave people. And that control their lives just as they, just like they, they and we get used to them. We're so used to being enslaved. We're used to being enslaved by our own sins. Then we can hardly imagine being freed from our fears, being freed from our focus on money and stuff 
being freed from our racism, our treating those that are different from us as outsiders. But we feel oppressed also by, by terrorism, like we've been celebrating this last day, or remembering anyway, and on and on. It's astounding. It really can happen, the people say. The people are trying to put things together, but without a real framework of understanding, of meaning, that could allow them to see the larger picture, what's really happening. Jesus doesn't fit the expectations of the people for a prophet, for a Messiah. But they are flummoxed by the real authority and power that they see. So Luke describes it, as I said, as noise, as a brouhaha, not understanding that spreads around about Jesus. Later, as that Sabbath comes to an end, as the sun goes down and the Sabbath ends, Jesus goes to, or actually before that happens, but during the later part of that Sabbath, Jesus goes first to Simon's house. Simon is just mentioned here without telling us who he is. He is, as you no doubt know, the, the, the one who later will be called Peter. And this is the first mention of him in the, in the gospel. Luke chapter 4, verses 38 and 39. After he left the synagogue, Jesus went into Simon's house. But Simon's mother-in-law was in the grip of a high fever. And they asked if he could help her. And when he stood leaning over her, he rebuked the fever. And it released her. Instantly, when she got up, she began serving them. So his wife's mother is held. And the term that's there is a term of oppression. He's, she's oppressed with this fever. It's another kind of captivity. And of course, I, I think all of us feel that oppressive power of disease in this time of pandemic. It's not something that we need to explain. But as we watch Jesus deal with the fever, which is evidently thought of as an ordinary disease, we learn something. We learn that Jesus had treated that daimonion, that being of power in the synagogue, just like he treats any disease. He has the power of the creator to release and to renew. He gives the man in the synagogue back his life as he gave Mary Magdalene back her life and as he gives Simon's mother-in-law her life back. Different kinds of situations, but the same release, the same freedom, the same movement, the same power and authority. And she, Simon's mother-in-law, responds. She responds in gratitude with service. She immediately, and, and Luke emphasizes this, just instantly she starts serving people. So there is both healing and renewal that is characteristic of this. Now Jesus all this time has been healing on the Sabbath, but the people are somewhat uncomfortable with it, and so as the Sabbath ends and the sun goes down, the people feel free to come to Jesus. And they bring every disease and enslavement. Drawing a crowd was never a problem around Jesus. Luke chapter 4, verses 40 and 41. Now as the sun was setting, all of those who had any who were sick with diseases of any kind 
brought them to him. But Jesus, by placing his hands on each one of them, began healing them one after another. But even beings of power, that daimonia, departed from many with loud cries, saying, you are the son of God. And with a rebuke, he wouldn't allow them to speak because they recognized that he was the anointed king, the Christos, the Christ, the Messiah. Luke lets us hear the cries of truth again. Son of God, anointed king, that he says Jesus silenced. We, from our perspective, can recognize what they mean. But the people then and there have no way of grasping that meaning yet. There's still that blindness. They're, they're captive to their preconceptions. And so we watch as the complexity of this unfolds, this paradox of a reality-breaking message. The whole paradigm of the world needs to be changed. The paradigm of God and what God is doing in the world, all of it has to shift as one looks at Jesus and sees what he's doing. And Luke helps us see what the blind crowd couldn't see. They, they see Jesus, they see his power, they see that he can heal, they just want help. And instead of Jesus saying, oh no, you don't understand, wait till you understand, then come back to me and we'll, we'll talk. He rather obliges. He obliges. He has them. I have no idea how they did this. It's sort of, I, I, you know, a line or something, a crowd, and one approaches after another. As many as they wanted. It starts in the evening. It evidently goes nearly all night long. And they come to him one after another, and he touches each one. And Luke emphasizes that. And healing after healing. Whatever the situation of whatever it is that's, that's oppressing, whatever it is that has captured them, whatever, it, whatever disease that is blinding them, that is making them sick, he heals them. Jesus deals with the people where they are, what they think they need as a way of looking forward to even larger needs. Luke also wants us to see how that amazement and need of the crowd can become demanding. And so he describes toward the end of our passage in verses 32 to 34 how the next morning Jesus goes into the wilderness. It's like after Jesus' baptism and he goes out into the wilderness for a period. Luke chapter 4, verses 32 to 40, uh, I'm sorry, uh, 42 to 44. Uh, but when day came, he left and walked off into a wilderness place, a wilderness area. And crowds began hunting for him. And they finally reached him and tried to restrain him so that he couldn't go any further from them. But he said to them, it's a necessity that I announce the good news of the kingdom of God in the other towns also. It's the very purpose for which I was sent. 
and he kept proclaiming it in the synagogues of the region of the Jews. Often that last phrase is translated of Judea, and it certainly could be translated that way. But Luke uses that term eudios in, in Greek sometimes to, to speak of just the regions that the, the Jews inhabited. And since Jesus is in uh, Capernaum, uh, it may mean that he traveled down to Judea and started preaching there, but it also could mean that, that he's looking at the whole area in which Jews Jews lived and he preaches. The crowds, though, try to keep him. They try to capture him, to keep him from leaving them. It's kind of a reverse Nazareth. You remember what happened in Nazareth? They got so mad at him, they took him out to the, to the ridge that the city was on, and they want to throw him over the, over the cliff and get rid of him. Here in Capernaum, it's just the opposite. They, they want to hang on to him. They want him to stay. But Jesus refuses either to be thrown over the cliff or to be held as a local power resource, the local person that's going to be there for them as a healer. He refuses any of those constraints. Rather, he's driven by what God called him to be, and he returns in his response to them to those words that we saw from Isaiah. Just to review them again, remember, the Lord's Spirit is on me because he's anointed me to announce good news to any who are poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to captives, recovering of sight to blind, to send out release to any who are oppressed, to proclaim a welcome year of the Lord. 4 verses 18 and 19. As he draws on Isaiah though, this announcement of good news that in Isaiah's text is specifically for the poor, becomes for the outsider and the insider and ultimately for everyone because it's God's kingdom, God's kingdom as creator and father, the one to whom everything belongs. It's not the kingdoms that the accuser had held out there and said, all of these have been turned over to me. Just bow down before me and I'll give them to you because I give them to whoever I want. Jesus shows that the accuser doesn't know what he's talking about. Jesus has that authority. Jesus doesn't head down to that new capital in Tiberias that Herod Antipas had built. He doesn't try to get into the court and make good with the, with the king. Rather, he goes out into the towns, the villages, to the people people who experience the blindness, who experience the enslavement, who experience the oppression, who know all of the forms and all of the variations of the brokenness of human life has. People who know their own sin, their own weakness, their own need in all its forms. Eyes can be opened. Sight can be recovered. Release can be given by God. The healings that Luke focuses on that Jesus does here are signs. They're not intended to change the whole circumstance of human existence so that there's no sickness or suffering anymore. Not to remove some fundamental characteristic of human life. But they are pointers. They're pointers toward God's purpose, God's direction, toward the deep reality of God's healing, God's forgiveness, 
the release that he's going to bring about and that we all need, that, that deals with human brokenness and deals with human death and deals with it in a way beyond imagination. You know the end of the Gospels. But if you're just reading this for the first time, especially in those days, you would never guess where this is going. It's going to break apart everything you ever thought you knew about a king, about the Son of God, about God. This is going to show the deep reality of everything in a kind of self-giving love and self, self-giving care for us that we could not imagine. This is rolling toward events that will and must unfold as the gospel unfolds. And the question for Luke is not whether the crowds then understood. That's past for him. The question is whether we, us Theophiluses, can see. Can we see? Jesus is sent, as Isaiah said. And that sentness is parallel with his being anointed. He's sent with a purpose that's already clear in the purpose of God, but is not at all clear to us. But recognizing it, trusting it, living within it remakes us as human beings. We're released from captivity, given sight, given freedom. Everything that we had expected is remade. And in Luke's gospel, that adventure is just beginning as we come to this point and the narrative. Let's bow together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that we may see, that our eyes may be opened, that the bonds that hold us, whatever they are, may be broken, and that we may help break all the bonds that hold others in our world, the bonds of all kinds of injustice and oppression, self-focus and hatred and violence, of, of just living in a world that does not know your self-giving love. Help us, Heavenly Father, that we may see that we may begin to be astonished, that we may be changed, that the beings of power that surround us may be sent away in silence. And even if we fall down in the midst of everything, that we may get up and know that release. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.